From the vibrant heart of the UAE to every corner of the world, welcome to season two of the International Classroom Podcast. Here, we not only explore education through a global lens, but also celebrate the unique needs, experiences, and perspectives each student brings. In each episode, we bring you insights and discussions from experts and educators around the world. They share their invaluable experiences, the challenges they faced, and the innovative solutions they've championed. So, whether you're an educator, a student, or simply someone with a passion for lifelong learning, we invite you to be part of this journey. Now, before we dive into today's episode, a quick note. Ensure you're following us on your favorite streaming platforms to always stay in the loop. And if you're tuning in via Deep Teaching on YouTube and you haven't clicked that subscribe button yet, do us a huge favor, do it now. We've been privileged to host some truly remarkable guests and your support in sharing and liking these episodes means the world to us. On to the episode. Um, the cool. one thing I wanted to ask in terms of your surname, I'm not going to try and say this, by the way, as it's recording, but I am curious to know, how do you pronounce your surname? I get that question a lot. And I often respond that I couldn't pronounce it until I was like 13. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, um, it's something that Afrikaans people have no trouble with is Hermeses. Hermeses. I can't even write it. Oh, yeah. So it's got That's... that and the in the middle. It's, it's not, it's not great for English speakers, but it is <laughs> yeah. kind of like a spam filter I found. So if somebody phones me and they're like, hi, is this Mr and they struggle i'm like okay you don't really know me you haven't <laughs> yeah you haven't taken the time yeah. to practice <laughs> yeah, I, wish I don't i don't have i don't have that one mine's very very simple justin thank you ever so much for joining me today on the international classroom podcast um obviously we were just talking about this but um where in the world uh where in the world do we find you today i'm in cape town where it is incredibly hot well, I'm in Dubai. Uh, I'm, I was quite happy this morning with a pleasant 17 degrees, by the way. Um, what oh. temperatures have you got there? I think this week we've, we're going to have about 37 degrees Celsius. Uh, we're looking forward to that tomorrow. <laughs> I can see. I can see you must be very excited. What's the, is, how's the humidity with you guys? Because obviously we get super hot, super humid. Um, do you get the same? It's not terribly humid here at the moment, so it's not uncomfortable. It's not muggy or anything. Okay. Well, lucky, lucky you. Uh, unfortunately with us, uh, when it's, it's one of those when it heats up, you just can't get the sweat off you and it's just worse. But as I say to everyone who ever asks, I oh, do buy it. It's, it's only hot if you go outside. We're very, very fortunate here. Very fortunate. Um, but I have not, not reached out to you to speak today to uh, talk about the sunny climates of Cape Town and South Africa. I and my listeners are far more interested in some of the superb work that you are currently doing. Um, and so just for the, the layman's, and there's a few of us out there, even myself included with this, could you explain to me what learning and behavioral design is? So I think it's worth clarifying that for most of my career, I've worked in adult education and largely developing learning and training for corporates. So in that space, the people who typically craft the learning experiences are called learning experience designers, historically instructional designers. 
And as that's become more digital, the skill set has sort of shifted towards that. So learning experience design is a kind of a design field and more specifically an experience design um, kind of discipline. So a lot of it is kind of blending traditional methods of education, but with some UX, with psychology, with a variety of other fields that might be relevant to creating those experiences. Uh, so a lot of overlap there. Um, behavioral design is, to my mind, a complementary discipline, but you don't usually find them together. And behavioral design looks more broadly at human behavior. And whereas something like learning design or instructional design assumes that many problems related to what people do and how they perform are related to absence of skills or knowledge or the presence of skills and knowledge, behavioral design looks more broadly and says, okay, well, it could also be a factor of habits, motivation, um, resources, social dynamics. So it looks a lot more broadly at an issue. So when you're trying to address some sort of a behavioral issue, then behavioral design is informed by the behavioral sciences largely. So I can go so, into a lot more depth, but often a behavioral design intervention will involve a learning component and often a learning problem that you're trying to solve involves a behavioral design component. Because that's what I was interested in in terms of how do these two marry up to give then mm. an effective, I suppose for a better word, what we want is an effective learning experience. I mean, what's the synchronicity like for the two of them? I will let you know when it becomes a common practice to mouth the two. <laughs> um, no, I, no, in all jokes aside, I think that, at least in my experience, people who are steeped in behavioral design do not typically have learning experience design experience and vice versa. So um, I think the shift is in not looking at a problem as necessarily a learning problem. That kind of limits you to saying, okay, well, what do we need to teach and what skills do they need to develop? Sometimes when you're looking at performance, it's useful to step back and say, you know, sometimes knowledge isn't the thing that matters. To give you an, ex an example, um, if you're asking somebody to recycle. So let, let's say that this is a behavior you would like to promote. It's perhaps not so much in the education space, but let's say hypothetically, there is a learning component where you can say, okay, well, how can we give them learning experiences so that they understand what recycling is, why that's important, what behaviors are related to it. They know how to do it, how to sort different types of recyclables, et cetera, right? So you could try to solve it like that. Uh, but there are other ways of doing it as well. So, for example, if you don't put recycling bins near to somebody, they will typically not do it. So even if they know that they should, and there's a greater degree of friction to walk from here to the other side of a park to dispose of it, they typically wouldn't. So it's recognizing that solving for knowledge, skill, and awareness isn't always enough in enough to determine the behavior that you're looking for or the performance that you're looking for. 
yeah uh, just listening to you then i'm trying to wrap my head around this in in terms of my experience in my own classroom um and from a science teacher like we we had this discussion today in school because we were talking about obviously something we're delivering and, and with different subjects and speaking on the historians was like we're quite we're very knowledge heavy so in terms of our learning outcomes they're all based around those so kind of think about right how do we design learning experiences what are we wanting them to learn and very rarely does the concept of behavior and i love the fact you say performance because that's something i'm i'm really fascinated by but it's very rarely that this idea actually comes into my mindset and I speak for a lot of teachers when I say that, but in terms of what behavioral response, what beha- what learned behavior, that side of it is rarely thought about. So in terms of the principles of those, if I'm now looking at it going, right, actually, I want to focus on this. What would be some of the principles you would recommend or as starting points that I could go about trying to incorporate into my teaching practices to, to have those effects? So I think... A good starting point is just to become aware of some of the behavioral design frameworks that exist. Probably the most popular one, and it has its pros and cons, is something called COMB. And basically, the idea is that if you have capability, opportunity, and motivation, those three factors together contribute to the desired behavior. So you'll see it often written C-O-M equals B. And so when you start to unpack the capabilities, that's often the vertical that contains what you would do in a classroom. But if you're saying, okay, well, what are the opportunities we're creating in order for them to do it? An opportunity could also be be things like um, the resources that are available or the times at which other people are available to meet. Uh, many other factors that fall under that. And then also looking at factors that are influencing their motivation. So that's a nice simplified model. Uh, There are incredibly complex ones. For example, the theoretical domains framework that has something like 30 factors that it will look at. Um, And again, skills and knowledge would only form one or two of the many factors looked at. So, that's quite useful when you're you're trying to understand what it is somebody needs to be able to do or accomplish. And I think the distinction between do and accomplish will become quite useful later on in this conversation as we move to other topics. But if you're looking at those sorts of things, at first, it's worth kind of doing a diagnosis. And that's where this is very useful, where frameworks like COMBI and theoretical domains framework or the theory of planned behavior, all of these are useful to understand why is it that people are not exhibiting the behavior or the uh, performance or achieving the outcomes that you're interested in? So I think hopefully that makes it a bit clearer as to why this is a useful additional set of lenses when you're developing learning experiences massively it sounded like i was actually just noting it down on my phone by the way because i was like i've got a pen in my hand i was looking for paper i was like right what my i was like right because it's i find it's fascinating in terms of a, a, i love the a different lens to look at it i think um teachers or i i find this in that we're we're still using a lot of things that are old and that still work don't get me wrong hmm. but 
it's for me i look at this like this idea of marginal gains like actually having this and combining it with some of these other principles so this the combi that you've mentioned there about capabilities and opportunities uh, what was the m stood for again motivation motivation having those types of things and applying it i can see that it's like ah oh, maybe that's got an opportunity there for like personalization or because that's a motivation thing it's just a different lens than how i can plan my lessons and therefore give students and that might have an impact then on their behavior because they're more engaged they're more this and so it's this idea of looking at obviously bringing together concepts uh, from outside of the box or outside of our normal remit of thinking that we wouldn't normally have done. And funnily enough, I've, I, re- I reckon I've tied this in quite nicely here, by the way. Um, <laughs> that's one of the things that you've started to do in terms of you are bringing in AI and combining it with these two different principles. What yes. what brought that what brought that about in terms of when did you discover that this could be something that is beneficial and could be capitalized on so i think that that relates a little bit more to my career over the last 12 years so i embarked on a master's degree in cognitive psychology quite late in life and then still did not complete it but In the two years that I was working on that, I became incredibly fascinated in um, the idea of decision support tools, um, using technology to supplement or augment what human beings are capable of. And so a, a lot of what I was focused on at the time was to say, okay, well, I've been engaged in philosophy of mind, psychology, behavioral science as part of my studies. But how do I want to take this further into my career? And so at the time, I was kind of aware of the study around cognitive limitations and ideas around bounded rationality. So no matter how skilled you are, or capable you are as a human being, you still have particular limits. And those often result in certain kinds of biases or poor decision-making, all those sorts of things. So the one of the things I realize is let's take a, uh, a cognitive skill like critical thinking. It can take you a lifetime to develop really, really good, high-quality critical thinking skills. So the question that became interesting to me is, is there any way that we could supplement or augment people's cognition so that they can benefit from things like critical thinking without having had to cultivate that painstakingly (laughs) for like 10 years and perhaps not ever actually achieve it even after, say, finishing their PhD, you know, this happens. And so I became interested in that. And that was the point in time where I really started focusing on um, natural language processing and the really basic forms of AI that existed at the time. Um, Fast forward a bit, I kind of ended up in adult education, learning design, and the organization that I worked for really, really focused on delivering learning through coach-like methodologies. So I found that very interesting, but as I progressed and I sort of found that that too had its limitations, I thought, well, you know, what if we brought more of this behavioral design 
And so as it happened, the organization I worked for started drifting towards developing more behavioral type solutions, not just learning solutions. So I had the, the opportunity to work for many years across both camps. Still found it very difficult to blend the two effectively. Um, then a bit later, I kind of moved into research and learning analytics. And that's where I really started to bring AI and data science back into what I was doing. And I recognized that the idea of having technology that can supplement or augment performance could be incredibly useful because the behavioral design on its own and the learning design on its own didn't seem to be sufficient. And to a large extent, it is because we do have certain cognitive limitations that are in many ways difficult to overcome. So that's, that's kind of what has led me to the point where I've been trying really, really hard to find better ways to blend these. And that's why earlier in the conversation, I really focused more on performance and achieving results than necessarily acquiring skills. Um trying to fathom the words for this because i find it just fascinating to listen to it because it's an area i am and lots of teachers or my colleagues are super fascinated and we hear a lot about cogsci and education and it's always look at it's always the same things it's always like oh dual coding and retrieval based practice and interleaving it's like yeah okay it has its merits but there's got to be in my mind it's like there's got to be more to it there's got to be something something more something and something different that that you can kind of get past just and i've always kind of found this block and everything you were just saying then kind of like it's it's opening up more windows of opportunity um in terms of this idea of augmenting or i'm gonna like you know think about in terms of just in terms of speeding up the process of developing these skills you know Mm. to get there faster um but i just want to really focus on because you mentioned this idea of performance and I'm curious to know what you would define performance as specifically as well, based on performance within a classroom. There are many ways to look at performance and it really often depends on what it is that you're hoping the outcome to be. So if you're, so it it is kind of a dynamic concept, but in a, in a classroom, I think performance is, and again, using the word capability rather than skill or ability. So let's say, for example, we're bringing AI into it and we're saying, okay, performance is defined as your ability to solve this problem, to reach some sort of a um, resolution for this. Your performance is determined by your ability by achieving that, not necessarily this, the skills or knowledge you have on board or in your head. It's your ability to leverage your environment, to use the resources that are available, to connect with other people, to find creative and interesting strategies. And so even though... <laughs> an individual might not necessarily be able to do it completely independently. They can still achieve that level of performance. So take, for example, I think it was 
quite soon after GPT-4 came out, it was middle of winter here in Cape Town. It was very cold. And I had the problem that I think most people have experienced at some point or another, and that is coffee getting cold or too cold <laughs> before you start drinking it. And so I was just thinking, well, you know, how do I know how long I should wait after making the coffee for it to reach the optimal drinkable <laughs> temperature? And one thing I haven't had an opportunity to use much throughout my career is calculus. So I had absolutely no <laughs> idea like how to proceed with this. So I went to GPT-4 and I said, look, this is my problem. I know that there, there are mathematical approaches to solving this. What are those approaches? And can you please explain them to me? And it came up with all these formulas. And I said, okay, cool. Now, can you please write me a script and give me a nice interface so that I can plug in a few variables and then you can output how long I need to wait? So things like ambient temperature, the volume of the cup, things like that. And probably about five to 10 minutes later, I had a fully functional app that I could run and I could like put in some details. And it was about 11.2 minutes that I needed to wait for my coffee to arrive at the optimal drinkable temperature. And this illustrates a point. I didn't have the skills to do that independently, but I could achieve that level of performance. I could achieve that result. And I think that along the way, although not directly taught, as a byproduct of that activity, I acquired insight I wouldn't have gained otherwise because the barrier to entry would have been too high or I would have felt disheartened because I was like, oh, do I really have to spend the next like couple of weeks doing refresher courses for this kind of mathematics? And so that radical reduction in friction that enabled me to undertake something I wouldn't have otherwise done so that I could benefit from the byproducts of that activity, that's quite a significant shift that has been made possible by AI. But it does require a little bit of a paradigm shift in, I think, for educators to say, okay, well, do we really need people to have all of this knowledge and, or all of these skills on board, what are we optimizing for? Yeah, that was going to be my follow-up question because we as educators have held on to the notion for a long period of time that knowledge is power and therefore consumption of knowledge and being able to recall all this information, you know, that's the holy grail. That's what we should be aiming for. You And actually what you're suggesting, and, and I kind of agree with it actually for most of it, is that we don't, and, and I, uh, necessarily in all industries, but we don't need to be advocating to be able to hold on to that when we have it at our fingertips. And soon with all these AI assistants that I think we're going to see in the, over the next year, maybe year two years that are going to be, you know, pocket size like the rabbit R1 that we've seen recently. Hmm. For a lot of educators, professionals, the requirement to have that, you know, to hand is, is not going to be there. So I've got an interesting one, obviously, people talk about obviously uh, medicine and, and doctors will still need to, and certain other industries will still need to be able to hold on to that. Um, but it might be that these things get so quick that it's able to ideate and, and work synchronously with obviously the doctors at that, at that stage It's kind of far-fetched ideas about it. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting point that you make then about that. And 
it kind of then goes back to this idea of what do you think and, and how do you think then this idea of this this trident almost of behavioral with learning and then with AI, how do you think that's going to help educators make lessons that are more engaging and effective for students? So I just want to take a step back and say that that may not be the right question to ask (laughs) because the assumption is that um, educators are making lessons, but if the paradigm is shifting, right, the notion of a lesson has this uh, connotation that somebody is learning something and learning is the focus. So, um, I do think that there is this idea that we're not necessarily always creating learning experiences where sometimes we're creating learning opportunities and sometimes we're just creating experiences. It doesn't always necessarily have to be a focus on that. So, um, in many cases, if you look at experience design more broadly, you'll find that there are lots, there are user experience design. So you're designing for a user, there's customer experience design and so on and so forth. So coming back to the idea of bringing behavioral design in, sometimes the difference between me accomplishing a task or not accomplishing the task is me having the habit or the realization that I have a tool at hand, not the retrieval of the knowledge. So the shift in that instance, so take the the coffee calculation Mm. example. I had gotten used to turning to AI to explain things and to write scripts. So in many ways it was awareness plus habit not awareness plus skill and so often when you're looking at helping students partner with technology behavioral science has a lot to tell us about how habits are formed for example and um so for example there I forget the exact term, so I'm not going to go into that right now. <laughs> but, you know, so that, that's what I meant before. Like maybe asking how does it inform the lesson design isn't the right question. In many ways, we find ourselves at a point where we don't have the vocabulary to describe what we're doing. And so a lot more imaginative work is required, a lot more philosophy is required to say, okay, how are our concepts changing? What is the new vocabulary we should be using to explain this? Um, the other things in um, from behavioral design that's quite useful is this idea of nudge theory. And you will have probably encountered that in some way or another. But it is it leverages a lot of the work done on cognitive biases, And there are proponents and detractors for nudge theory. But the idea is that understanding how people are predictably irrational Mm -hmm. or how um, 
they're influenced by all sorts of other factors, we can design things to um, to promote the kinds of behaviors that we're looking for or to de-bias certain behaviors that we're interested in de-biasing. That's a bit vague, but I think that that kind of gets the general shape of of it. Yeah, you just absolutely blow my mind with that, uh, Justin. I felt like one of my favorite films is The Matrix, and it's kind of whether you've seen it or not, but there's a scene in The Matrix where there's this young student, mm-hmm. and obviously the main character looks down, and he's rubbing this spoon, and he's obviously tells him it's the wrong question. The question you really want to ask is, you know, there is or says there is no spoon. I feel like I've just been there is no spooned by you, Justin, by telling me about lessons and completely changing how we go about viewing them in terms of the experience that's on offer. There is is this le- and 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 I think it's a, a really a great starting point for educators and there's a lots of calls for reforms and there's lots of you know we've got let's say when we're filming this right now there's bet that's going on there's melissa mcbride with the disrupt ed that's going on lots of conversations i've had about you know project-based learning and and skills but at some point we do need to stop and shift as you've said and really question you know what ex- and I'm, I'm paraphrasing to some extent here but if i am designing let's say opportunities is it an opportunity for a student to develop a skill is it an opportunity for a student to let's say acquire knowledge and and learning or is it just i'm offering an experience within my lesson that maybe sometimes has nothing to do with those two things and i've never thought about it like that i've always just gone in and go right what am i inputting and i might think about the different ways I input information to my students in terms of them going, right, let's go inquiry-based. We can use research skills. Let's use AI, you know, and I'm, I'm very much about skills and we've mentioned performance and, and I look at it sometimes from the concept of teachers, like what is the performance of the teacher and it's the consistency to be at a certain level, you know, for long periods of time and, and, and have these outcomes that we talk about, but never before have I stopped to really almost philosophically think about why, why why do i have this design what is the flow what is the sequence and in terms of the the experience that i'm offering to the students and and from an educ as a, an educator i often look about what well, i look at it as engagement was it fun were they engaged did they leave my lesson knowing something that they didn't know when they came in and it's that focus on knowledge it's that focus on learning and and yeah. actually i I've, as I say, really started to think now just from listening to you in terms of the why. Why? Why does it have to be about that? Is it because the syllabus says so? Because the exam board says so? Because that's what I'm told an outstanding sequence of lessons in the curriculum is. Whereas actually, if if we think about just focus on something simple, like let's start with experience and then build up. And actually, we, we would see a tremendous shift in probably the type of lesson the quality of lesson, uh, the differentiation. And what I mean by that is the different types of lessons because they're no longer thought of probably as lessons, are they? You would just think about them as opportunities or experiences. Mm. Um, That would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? If there was no more lesson planning, if there was no more, I'm going to come and do a lesson observation. It's Mm. like, okay, what do we call it? Well, we're going to call them experiences. We're going to call them opportunities. So hang on, am I planning for an opportunity? Yes. You're planning for an experience. 
Yes. So what are you going to come and observe? Well, I just want to come and see how well the students participate in your experience, how well they, you know, how well they take the opportunities you provide for them. And it's like, that's a radical shift. I'm, 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 I'm completely blown away, but I, I, I'm, <laughs> you can see I'm, it's not very often I get speechless. Um, just my, my brain, even at this crazy hour of time we've got tonight, my brain is whirring with the, the wonderment of what this could be. Um, and obviously mm. there's a lot of deeper, deeper work that goes into it and, and deeper research that you've obviously done and goes into it, but it's, it's, it's fascinating, fascinating things. And, and you've touched on obviously the challenges that come with this and you've touched upon obviously um, the, I think the benefits there are to it. And, and, and I have hopefully I've paraphrased some of them there and gave some interesting mm-hmm. thoughts. Um, but you've mentioned, and when I was preparing for this, I was doing my research um, and there's obviously some other components that come into this. And one of the terms that cropped up quite a few times when I was doing this was this thing called cyborg skills. And mm-hmm. I was trying to explain it to my wife before I came on to speak with you. And I, I, I like I did my best with it, but what for those people listening that this might be the first time they've ever heard of cyborg skills what are cyborg skills okay well so the idea of the cyborg is not something i can take credit for um the idea of cyborg skills however i believe i I, i'm the first person to start using the idea so the idea of human beings being natural born cyborgs. And I've spoken about this in, on previous occasions as well. It largely comes from the work of the um, cognitive psychologists and philosophers of mind, um, Andy Clark and David Chalmers. And there's this really well-known book, and it's also doing the rounds on LinkedIn, lately <laughs> again. Um, to say, uh, it's called Natural Born Cyborgs. Yeah. And another book called Supersizing the Mind. And I mentioned earlier that while I was doing my master's, uh, a couple of things occurred to me. And my supervisor at the time recommended that I read these books. And then I went on to read a lot about the extended mind hypothesis. And it's this idea that human beings naturally co-opt the world to extend their cognitive processes. And simple examples are would be to extend your memory capability you might use your fingers as an external buffer instead of saving things in your working memory you're outsourcing you're saying oh okay so it's 53 72 you're using your hand as an external buffer the way that i remember which uh, dessert or (laughs) which cup is my wife's and mine i kind of have a little mnemonic and i put hers on the left and mine on the right you know? And so whenever I see the one on the left, I'm like, Oh, okay. So I'm using my environment to extend my mind in many ways. Um, people use sticky notes so that they can use retrieval at the point of need. Um, we use calculators to extend our ability to calculate things. So we're, we're extending our minds out into the world. And so instead of thinking, of your mind as being something that's simply contained within your skull, <laughs> you think of it as something that extends into the world. And in that sense, because, and in many ways, it's interesting as well. Like when you, for those of us who grew up with pens <laughs> at the very least, you know, when you use a pen, the pen has become such a part of your mind's model of your body that you're not aware of the pen. 
the pen is just an extension of your hand, you're aware of the point at which it interfaces with the world. And so in many ways, when we reach that level of fluency with our tools, they become invisible equipment. And then in a very real sense, our mind has just accepted that it's a part of you. And in that way, they, they argue, um, David Chalmers and Andy Clark have argued, we're cyborgs, uh, extendable beings. And so where I've really tried to think about cyborg skills, particularly with AI becoming more prevalent, is to say, okay, what, and there are two parts to this, what are the skills that we need in order to effectively extend ourselves with technology? Because there are some people, like I have a workflow with AI at the moment that allows me to achieve things that last year this time were unthinkable, you know, um, and I take it all for granted. And if you take it away, it'll feel like I've been lobotomized. Um, so to, to a large extent, that's already happening. So what are the skills that we need in order to extend ourselves? But then the second part of that question is what are entirely new skills and a more interesting question, entirely new forms of cognitive ability that arise once we have. And so that's typically what I mean when I talk about cyborg skills. Now, what exactly those skills are is an interesting area of investigation. <laughs> um, because but, that's what I was going to ask you next. But a good, I think a good example, and I think we have to invent new words. I mean, at what point did somebody come up with the word memory? You know, it's something that's kind of evolved and we, we, we brought in terms from Greek mythology, things like nemesine and psyche, all of these things inform how we talk about the mind today. We're going to need similar kinds of concepts to explain what we will be able to do. And interestingly enough, AI can help us with, with that creating new concepts for things we haven't spoken about. And so it, it's going to require quite a significant series of imaginative leaps for us to start figuring out this new vocabulary. Uh, and I have a couple of projects that are happening over the course of the few months where I will share some of my thinking. It will just be preliminary, but hopefully it'll provide some starting vocabulary for many people to start thinking about what cyborg skills are and what they could be. That's fascinating. And obviously in terms of details, we can, we can get to that towards the end. So people can, can come and look for this. It made me laugh because I'm very fortunate. I get to speak to a lot of people whilst I do this podcast. And, uh, someone I spoke to recently was talking about students and children of this generation that we're in as empire builders and mm. actually refer to the language that they create Similar to what we did when we were young, I said, these children now create this language. They are building empires with the technology they are using and generating new forms of words and languages. They do that, that we probably like our parents did to us, look down on and just be like, can't you just speak properly? You know, these abbreviations, <laughs> it's like, why do you need to say be right back when you can just say BRB? Why do you need to say, I don't know when you can just say IDK, you know, and my 10 year old has picked up on this and, and I look at it in. And my wife's the same. It's like, ah, oh, just frustration. Whereas actually, you again mention that if you just shift how you view things and go, but 
you know, there are they are empire builders. They, this language they're generating, they're going to grow into this. They are going to be potentially the generation that coin these phrases that you know give meaning and terms to these things that have yet been discovered for the integration of how a human successfully works with an AI device or interface or something along those lines that we're not there yet and and they're gonna they're gonna build that they're they're gonna have those things the other Mm. thing that really made me that really made me laugh and this can probably tell i spend far too much time across youtube is that there's a guy on there that runs these memes and it's basically to do with he sits down and it's it's like him and then there's a obviously a parody of him like it's uh the guy who comes up with words and he's just sat there going, right, we're going to come up with uh, a word, just an example, for people who struggle to say out the word uh, S, for example. And he's like, lisp. And he's like, and these are all the words he goes through. So he's like, you're going to you're gonna put that into the word. He's like, so they're going to always be saying lisp. And he's like, yes. <laughs> and it's just, like you say, it just made me laugh. He's, he's out, I can't remember the guy's name. He does these memes out on YouTube about the, the, you know, the word creator. Um, and it's just fascinating. But you're absolutely right. It, it's, uh, it's so interesting to think. And it's exciting. I find it exciting. And I know some people mm. with, have it with trepidation and concern and worry. And, and there is that concern, isn't it? Because when you talk about these things, when we talk about performance or we talk about st- standards of things, you know, awards, whatever it may be. Do you think there's ever a risk that all this stands to make mediocre good, good to great? And then we have to question, well, where does great go to? And is there an opportunity then that people that, you know, potentially who, you know, were only ever mediocre or even lower, now have this opportunity to be good or great. Should we embrace that or should we be concerned about the the potential workforce discoveries and all these things that now have this opportunity to, to super excel because of the machinery and technology around them? I think that that's quite a tough question to answer. So... To a large extent, I think about kids who are maybe three or four years old now, and they will grow up never having known anything else. And if we get this design piece right, we were saying, okay, we're designing systems, including AI and AI informing those systems to optimize their development in the most positive way for them, whatever that means. They can have a kind of a level of focused cultivation that has never been possible for human beings throughout the history of mankind. You know, um, I have family members who I like young family members who I share this with, and I'm noticing how different it, it is for them. The things that they can explore, think about that we couldn't, And so the question is, if you've had pretty much from birth an absolutely optimized developmental process or roadmap, what is it that you will be capable of? Earlier in this conversation, uh, I did mention that the focus might not be on learning, but learning still happens as a byproduct. I keep coming back to this idea of apprenticeship and also the the learning approach called cognitive apprenticeship. This idea that a lot of the knowledge that matters is tacit and it's hard to articulate explicitly in a lesson. You have to model it. And through coaching over time, somebody tries to mimic, try it themselves. 
they fail, they're corrected. And there are these scaffolds that's progressively become, that are progressively removed while the person reaches a degree of skill or uh, mastery. Now, imagine that although we're partnering with intelligent machines, AI, yes, it's taking over some of the tasks, but we're still always learning. Learning as this part of your life that is distinct from other things that you do is, I think, quite an artificial distinction. But as we go about our lives, through our partnerships, through delegating load, through observation, we're always learning. So even though we're tackling things and we're achieving higher levels of performance, we're also learning from that in ways that are hard to anticipate. So coming back to your question, it's hard to imagine <laughs> what levels of what, what they might be capable of yeah. even at younger ages. And how does that change the workforce that they're entering into? What, what new things are they going to invent? What new entrepreneurial ventures are, go are they going to create in order to, to enable them to do the things that they, they can now do? I think humorously, I think about, you know, trying to speak to somebody 400 years ago. You take the most intelligent person 400 or 500 years ago, most educated person, and on many fronts, nine-year-olds, 10-year-olds today take for granted what yeah. was incredibly hard-won capability. But instead of 400 years passing for that to happen, 20 years might pass before we see that incredible gap. Mm. And yeah, that's, yeah, it's, yeah, sorry to, to cut you in there. It, it's even for me, I, as a scientist, we teach about these things. We're learning about history. We're learning about historical events that have taken place, you know, the history of science. And it could be like, you're talking to, I don't know, doing about genetics at the moment. We could be talking to Gregor Mendel. You know, and these things like why, and we ask this question, why were Mendel's ideas rejected? Why weren't they, why weren't they accepted to start with? And it's without this concept of knowing about DNA and genes and being able to f see it. Then you fast forward, you know, to, you know, the mid 1940s, 50s, talking about discovery of DNA. And again, you go, right, let's go another 70 years. Where are we at now? And you're seeing the, the time frame between these major life you know, discoveries and implementation of these things, you're right, they're getting shorter and shorter and shorter. You know, in terms of, I remember we speaking with Dan Fitzpatrick and he said, well, think about the iPhone. You know, was it 2007? That's when the iPhone came out. And where we are now in terms of the speed at which these things racing ahead, I saw, what was it? The I think it was the guys at Stanford and they had the glasses that were now being mm. able to be used. So for, for deaf people, they could then see the words coming up on the bottom of the screen, like I'm pointing to now, the words would appear there. So you could actually, you know, understand that. And, and so you're right. And, and it's an ex, I view it with excitement more. So an optimism, I remember this uh, in terms of uh, speaking with Gabby, like uh, I'm an optimist rather than the pessimist when it comes to sort of the technology and, and those types of things of what it can bring. Um, and you say it in, and obviously, such a for yourself an optimistic and, and calm way about it it's like yeah you're right there's there's excitement if we if we go about viewing it in the right way and give our students the opportunities 
I think is the key thing there, then, um, you know, that it's an exciting time for them to be around of what they could potentially achieve. So just as we start to kind of draw down and I really appreciate the time you've given me tonight to this evening, it's, it's fascinating. What, what would be some of the, for the people out there listening who maybe came in at the start of this, you know, thinking that learning design was this or behavioral design and, you know, these combinations we've talked about. Do you think there are still things out there, these myths that people generally have sort of things that you think, you know what, this is a work, this is worth debunking. You know, I've got the opportunity now to kind of demystify some things. Is there anything out there that you think educators or people listening should, should really know? That's an interesting question. I think, I don't know if it's a myth to be debunked or I think it's a lot of what we spoke about earlier. It's recognizing that, okay, maybe I can tell a story and this is useful. I think a practical tip is a really, really really good way of avoiding (laughs) answering this question. (laughs) Um, So, What I found incredibly valuable, both as a learning designer and as a behavioral designer, are two things that I think are incredibly powerful. And if anybody starts using it for themselves and with students today, it's going to have an incredibly large benefit. And so the the myth is thinking that with technology, you need complex solutions in order to address the many of the problems that we have already, probably one of the most useful things that I can recommend is they explain it like I'm five. It's actually more useful for adults than children, but if kids start using it today, right? The, the implications of having zero friction, accessible explanations at the point of need is profound, but it's, it feels very simple. It doesn't feel like you're solving any kind of really big problem. And that's the thing that I found a lot in behavioral design is often finding one simple nudge or one point of leverage can significantly change the outcomes. It doesn't have to be complicated. The other thing, and this is something I do want to recommend for educators, is to use the devil's advocate. So... Plug in your most preciously held notions about what it means to learn. Plug in your most, um, the, the frameworks you've taken for granted, Bloom's taxonomy, but ask it to provide a, to play devil's advocate, to be highly crit- critical, uncharitable, and incredibly grumpy, right? Like, and that at that point, I find <laughs> that it actually raises some very, very interesting questions for us to reflect on and possibly review practices we've taken for granted that may not hold when you're thinking about a world filled with cyborgs. Great piece, a great piece uh, of advice and a nice story for that one as well. Uh, I will be going off soon and asking ChatGPT because I am in the habit of using it for everything as well um i i often find i ideate a lot with it and, and come up with 
scenarios for my lessons. So the fact that I'm going to ask it to be devil's advocate for me, I'm quite excited to see what the outcome is from that, what it tells me, what information it gives me. So thank you for that one. Um, but even it's, the learning approach under it, sorry for the interruption, but even the no, learning please. approach, the idea of project-based learning or flip classroom, just take all of those ideas that seem really, really great. And they are, but plug them in anyway, you know, um, just have, just have fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, it's great. It's, it's, that is again, more food for thought. You have been very generous with your golden nuggets. Uh, I call golden nuggets in terms of these, you know, really great pieces of information and advice. Um, for the educators, others, we kind of wrap this up. If you were to offer then just some, just some resources or places to start with, to get involved in this, um, what would you say, where would you point them in terms of direction to, to go, go, go and look at this or go and follow this person or go and read this. This will, this will help to, so we can get more educators like actually exploring these things and trialing them and, and bringing them into their classroom. What would be your sort of, you know, three, five, what would be your recommendations for them? So a couple of things. Um, if you're interested in behavioral science and starting to look at ways of incorporating behavioral design principles into your experience design. Um, certainly do look at things like Combi. Um, there are some useful newsletters to follow um, in the behavioral science community. For example, there's uh, Habit Weekly, which uh, I couldn't recommend more highly. There's also its kind of sister newsletter, uh, Behavior Bytes, which is kind of new, but it looks at the intersection of behavioral science and AI. And there's often some really, really interesting things, uh, particularly as it relates to the kinds of behaviors that require 21st century skills, but without necessarily the skills. Um, and so certainly on that front, if you're interested in a lot of the ideas around the extended mind hypothesis, then definitely uh, have a look at uh, supersizing the mind or natural born cyborgs. Um, there are more current books written on the subject, so you'll be able to find those as well. Um, I think that those, those are a good place to start if you're interested in combining those different ideas and saying, seeing where they lead. And obviously, following you across uh, potentially LinkedIn would be uh, also a, a wealthy and worthwhile activity, wouldn't it? Hopefully, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I try. I try not to be, uh, not to say anything when I have nothing to say. <laughs> which is always a good way. Which means it makes them the content that you do put out is also more the, more informative for it. Um, and that's how we, that's how we obviously met. Just, I was following your work and just sort of really intrigued and fascinated by the things that you were doing. And, uh, yeah, I wanted to speak to you to learn more about it, which I feel completely enriched by. You've, you've, yeah, you've taken my, my original thoughts around education and what I thought I know, and you completely turned it on its head, uh, in this conversation in the most benefit in a most positive way. And I think that's the type of thing we want in terms of to be thinking about this and, changing the way we view things is 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 fantastic uh, i really appreciate that in terms of yeah had my mind blown in certain areas there justin so thank you um 2024 we're still still right at the beginning of 2024 and as it was as we look ahead into the rest of this new year what are your plans what are your what are your hopes and aspirations 
So uh, probably something that I've been pursuing for the last 12, idea, 12 years is this idea of building um, decision support tools. And a lot of the consulting work that I do combines learning design, behavioral design, and AI. But specifically, I want to start building more tools that people can partner with to support the way that they make decisions. And I think that we're just at the beginning of that, and there's a lot of promise. So uh, as I embark on the year ahead, I would like to, now that a lot of the technology has matured, start bringing out or developing more of those sorts of things for education, uh, also for designers in general, and many, hopefully, that will inspire the kinds of things that our kids are going to grow up and use. It's very exciting. I am. I've I've walked away from this feeling very inspired, uh, and just as I say, I keep going back to it. Just thought provoking. So, if anyone out there does want to get in contact with you and is interested, wants to know more, collaborate on these types of things, where's the where's the best place to find you, Justin? I think LinkedIn is definitely the best place. Um, they can just send me a DM. Fantastic. And we will put your credentials and, and link in, in the description for this. But for now, um, thank you ever so much for taking the time to speak with me and, and this. As, as I can't reiterate enough just how how interesting a conversation I have found this in terms of just uh, thinking about my approach to, to learning. I'm not even going to call it education anymore, just my approach to opportunities and experiences. Those will be the, the two key words I think I take away from this and really embrace into my teaching as I move forward and think about the, the for my students what are the opportunities I'm giving them what are the experiences that I'm giving them and have that lead the way in which I deliver my lessons as it were um so thank you ever so much for sharing that it's, I've really really enjoyed it um and really appreciate it so again I cannot thank you enough yes it's been an absolute pleasure thanks for having me 